Okay, are we all settled in? Ready for this seminar? Yeah. Yes, we are ready for this seminar. Um, it is warm in here, I'm sorry. I look like I'm having a flush. I'm not embarrassed by the topic, just so you know. Um, I am just quite hot. Okay, so welcome to this session. Well done for coming to this session. Some of you will not know what to expect from this. But let me reassure you of this. I have spent many hours of preparation time and prayer sifting through the many things that we can talk about about sex. And so my prayer is that God has gone before us in all things and that he is bringing the word today for you to hear. He's just using me as a vessel. And I'm a good talker, so we're all good. Okay, so just to be clear, we're all about being authentic. So I'm going to be really authentic with you today. Um, and I'm going to firstly say that I have no qualification or certificate on this topic other than my marriage certificate, which I have had for 18 years, although we met when we were 12, so I feel like I've done extra service really there. <laughs> um, I'm hoping for a gold certificate at 20, possibly some more jewellery, something to make that a significant milestone. But let me start off by asking you a question. Why do people get married? Or more to the point, why did you get married? Can you answer that? Has anyone got an answer right now? Yes, that's a great answer. Commitment. Yeah. Longing to be with somebody. Yeah, they're all really good answers. In a newspaper article, it was reported that a question had been asked on a website called Whisper. And that website is a secret sharing website. It, it is real. People go on and confess in this secret sharing website. And the question that they asked was the same as I've just asked you. Why do people get married? Let me tell you some of the confessional responses on that website. I'm only marrying my fiancé because the man I really loved married somebody else. I married my husband for his money. I've been homeless and I will never go there again, no matter what it takes. I'm only getting married because I'm trapped. I've gone down a road I can't come back from. And the last one, which I found the most out of all, I'm just getting married for my big wedding day. And these are what people are really getting married for. And that just really just makes me feel so sad in my heart that people are getting married for financial gain for security, for the show of the day. The average wedding coming between 20 and 30,000 pounds now, all on one day. It's ridiculous that, that people are putting the emphasis, isn't it, on just that one moment in your life and not looking at the long journey that's ahead. And so that makes me feel sad that actually love isn't mentioned in that. Because I believe without love as your foundation stone in your marriage, you will struggle to build anything of substance on that. Love is a cornerstone within your marriage and your foundation. And so we have to want to be successful and healthy in our marriages. Now, 10 years ago, myself and my husband, Paul, went to an Alpha conference. 
And uh, we were Alpha Course leaders at the time. And um, we went and we were a bit starstruck by Nikki and Pippa Gumbel. I don't know if you've come across those two. Um, and so we were like, oh, it's Pippa and Nikki trying to get a picture in the background with them. And um, because then we were Alpha, like they are. And, and so this seminar had come up uh, run by a couple called Nikki and Scylla Lee. And they, you've probably seen that, they um, pioneered this, which is called the marriage book, which they have uh, run off the marriage course. And we went into that session going, well, we'll just go and see what that seminar's about. And we came out completely transformed. We felt so challenged by what we were hearing and the statements that they were saying. And we just felt like we've got to do something. We've got to make a difference. And they were making some really bold statements and saying, asking some really big questions like the one I just asked you about how, um, why you should get married in the first place. But the one that they asked that really stuck with us was, how do we stay happily married? And we'd not really thought about that, really. We'd sort of struggled and fumbled our way along. And then all of a sudden, this question's in front of us. Because I've come from parents that were divorced. They divorced when I was eight years old. And so I didn't have a brilliantly healthy view of marriage. And my husband's parents had separated as well for a, t a period of time. And so he didn't either. And so we just felt like we wanted to make a difference in our own marriage so that we wouldn't go down that road like they went down. But also we wanted to fight for other people's marriages too because we don't want people to have broken marriages. God doesn't want us to have broken marriages. And so we took it on ourselves to make that our quest. And so for the last 10 years, we have continuously run marriage courses, marriage preparation classes, marriage post-marriage one-to-one classes, and anything we can possibly get our hands on to do with marriage. We've made it our business to learn everything we can learn, read every book, listen to every seminar, weigh and test every theory that's out there on successful marriages because we were so passionate about it. And quite often we get asked all these questions, we ask all these questions in our, in our classes. You know, and when we do marriage preparation classes, we ask that at first, why do you want to get married? And you hope and pray that they give the answers that you just gave and not the ones about financial gain and never being homeless and all the other things, because then there's some real big flags that need to come up with that. But we get told lovely things like, I want to spend the rest of my life with him. You know, because I, I, I love everything about her. And it's a relief to hear that because that's what we need to build on in our marriages. And so like these lovely doughy-eyed young couples that we come across, that was us once. We were in the church before God, nodding in all the right places, saying I do to all the right questions, fresh-faced and totally hopeful of a really rosy, idyllic future together. But the truth of it was that actually we were not prepared for the journey that was going to be ahead of us. It had been really good. We never did marriage prep, uh, preparation classes. Um, when, when we got married, they, they weren't available to us, but I wish we had. In fact, I wish someone had said to me, you know what, look out for these hot spots that are going to come up in your marriage. Look out for these danger areas because you're going to have to work as a team and not on your own. You're going to have to work together and work really hard at making your marriage a success. And the other thing is, I wish someone had told me that you have to talk about stuff. You have to talk about the stuff. Because everyone has stuff. Whether you recognize it or not, 
everybody enters marriage with stuff. And it's funny because in them first few weeks of marriage, you don't see the stuff, do you? It's not actually that obvious, but it's definitely there, just lying low, waiting for the honeymoon period to be over. And then it starts to rear up. People often say, oh, you're running all these marriage courses, you must have the perfect marriage. No. No one has the perfect marriage. Let me just put that out there now. No one has the perfect marriage. Because marriage has to be worked at. But what we have done is we've not managed to find the perfect marriage. We've learned how to um, work hard. We've learned, we have to learn the hard way of how to work hard and how to make our marriage work the best for us. And that takes time. We had stuff in our marriage. You'll have stuff, I have stuff. We definitely had stuff. Our stuff is actually the most common stuff that people deal with in all marriages, which is money, lack of it, and sex, and lack of it. And they have been, that has been our stuff all the way through our marriage. And so today, I'm not going to talk about money because that is really boring still. And that's probably more my husband's thing to talk about. But I'm going to talk about sex and intimacy because I put a lot of value on the hard work that I've had to put in to make sure I don't have a sexless marriage. My prayer really for you today is that you will return home with a new hope, a new purpose, and a new desire to have a beautifully intimate marriage. So what we're going to do is I'm going to go through some sex myths. And we're going to counteract that with some truths and some honesty. And um, there's nothing that really I won't talk about. So brace yourself in some ways. <laughs> I've tried to be tame. We'll wait for Q&A for those questions. So sex myth number one. Everyone is having great sex but you. Okay? The truth is only 7% of married couples are constantly and frequently having sex. 7%. The average couple have sex once a week in the first decade of their marriage. After that, it becomes less. So that's 52 times a year, but not taking into consideration the weeks that you're on your period. Not taking into consideration when you're ill. So let's say on average then, most couples are having sex 40 times a year. I actually know people that go to Starbucks together more frequently than that. It doesn't seem so much when you put it like that, does it? And we get asked that question all the time on marriage preparation class. How often should we be having sex? And the guys all tend to say, every day, we're having sex every day. <laughs> and the girl sort of goes, a couple of times a week, maybe, at the most, Saturday night. You know, and he's like, no, 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 every waking moment, right? So what we say to them is this, it's up to you. Because everyone is different and everyone has different levels of desire and everyone is in a different season of life. So you cannot compare yourself to anybody else. So the answer to that question is, is you have to talk about it because the question isn't how often should I be having sex? The question is, how important is it to me? Is sex a priority to me? Because you'd make time for other things that are a higher priority, like going and having that coffee or 
other things, but sex has to become a priority to you. Every part of your marriage affects your lovemaking. But your lovemaking affects every part of your marriage. I'll say that again. Every part of your marriage affects your lovemaking. And your lovemaking affects every part of your marriage. So if your communication lines are down, if you're not talking to one another, you're going to struggle to be intimate because you're going to feel distant. And that's hard. If the amount of time together that you prioritise is very limited, then as a wife, you're going to start to feel neglected and unimportant. Most marriages struggle in both those areas. My advice is to discuss how often you should be having sex. And that's a big conversation to have, but it's the best conversation you'll have. Because if you don't do that, you're just going to play a guessing game. And somewhere, someone's playing a different level of game to you. Your husband might be wanting more. He might not be wanting as much as you think he is. But you'll never know unless you actually have that conversation with him. So that's the answer to that myth. Talk it through and don't compare yourself to everybody else. Because actually 7%, not everyone else is having great sex. It's not just about what you're doing. Everyone's in the same boat. Okay, sex myth number two. Now, your sex life is over. You believe in that as a myth. My sex life is over. It's too late to rescue. You could be thinking, Lindsay, I've not had sex in the last decade, never mind in the last week. It is gone. It's died. It's over. It's finished with. There is no way of it coming back. That is a lie. Your sex life can be resurrected. But it's really important to the success of your marriage that you want to have sex. It's a choice that you have to make. There will be a reason that your sex life is over in your head because something will have happened to you, some conversation or something's got in the way where you have lost your lines of connection. There's a reason that the interest has gone. There's a reason that the connection's gone. And so in my own marriage, I've had these periods of time when I call myself dormant, where I have struggled and my sex life has become some sort of a distant memory. And these has happened in lots of different times in my life. One that really was quite significant was after my first child. I was just, I just was struggling to switch myself back on. It was really difficult. Mostly because I thought, actually, the things that really were important in sex now doubled up as another function, yeah? It was like a launch area all of a sudden for a large object. <laughs> not sexy at all. Not when half the hospital staff had had a look up there. It was functional. Took all the sexiness out of it. And then up here, milking machine. There was nothing going on sexy up here for me. I felt the least sexy possible because I had, my body had doubled up as a different function altogether. And so that didn't help me to switch back on. On top of that, I was really tired. Really tired. You know it's like, if you've got children, you know how tiring it is. And every time I have three children, every time I've had a child, you have to give a bit more of yourself out, don't you? You have this new dependent on you. 
So actually, it's gone from the being the two of you to them being the three of you to being the four of you to being the five of you. And every single time, you have to give yourself a little bit more emotionally, physically, and mentally. So that's really tiring. And you're trying to do all that on about four hours sleep. So actually, sex was not something that I wanted to talk about, let alone engage into. Really challenging. Other times when this has happened, where I've become dormant, is when I've been really stressed. Stress is a massive deal for me. If I'm stressed, I can't relax. I don't want to take my fleecy jammers off. I'm sorry, I'm in them. They're not coming off tonight. <laughs> I'm comfort. I'm, I'm in my comfort place. Don't talk to me. I'm, I'm stressed. And so that's how I would be, and I'd, I'd turn over and shut off and, and not want to engage in any way without actually discussing it with him about that's how I was feeling. And so it left Paul, my husband, feeling very rejected because he didn't know what was wrong with me when really I should have just told him, I'm really stressed, I'm finding it hard to relax. Another time is when I've been overwhelmed about my circumstances. I have this thing where I seem to keep extending my house and it really stresses me out and I get really anxious about that and the, the stress of having the house in a mess and things like that and I recognise that as a time when, again, I'm, I'm just too tense. I don't want to have sex. And so other things come in, don't they? Child stress, money stress, church stress. Church stress shouldn't even be a thing, but it's a thing. We're leaders in our church. And for you yourselves, if you're in a church, church stress happens. People like to bring some bombshell to you and drop it off at your door and leave you and walk away from it. And you've got to deal with it. So all these things are coming in. And as you can see, bit by bit, sex becomes less and less and less of a priority. And so it's the last thing that I'm thinking about, not the first thing that I'm thinking about. So I came up with a strategy for this. How do I wake myself up? Okay, so you might think this is quite clinical, but believe me, it worked. I had to come up with a plan. So I wake up in the morning and I think, I'm going to have sex today. Because if I make that decision at 11 o'clock at night, I will not want it. For many reasons, like I've just discussed. But also, at 11 o'clock at night, I think I probably set off to bed at 9. Well, like we women do, you pop a wash on, you make sure the kids' bags are sorted out, you just answer that quick text, you write yourself a note, you go and give the bathroom a quick wipe round, and you crawl into bed at 11 o'clock, and your husband crawls in next to you, but he spent two hours watching Prison Break, so he's really nice and chilled out, and you're like, I've just bleached the toilet. I don't want to instigate sex right now. It's a no-no, right? I don't feel any connected to him in, on any level at that point. In fact, I'm seething with him. I'm really mad. So sex is not going to happen. I'm on lockdown. I've got the full jammers, onesie. There is like, you may as well put don't disturb across my chest because he is not coming in, okay? So I had to counteract that. So, okay, I'm going to have sex today. So in order for that to happen, I have to make sure I don't talk myself out of it. So first of all, I make myself accountable, accountable to him. So I send Paul a text. Hey, darling, I want to have sex tonight. Which, that puts a smile instantly on his face, right? <laughs> but then I follow it up with some provisos. In order for us to have sex tonight, I need you to do some things. Okay, it works. Try it. You're going to like this. I need you to come home from work early or at least on time. If that doesn't happen, it's not going to happen tonight. <laughs> Sounds threatening, but what that means is that I'm not doing tea on my own. 
that I'm not doing all the washing up on my own. I'm not doing all the things that need to be done on my own where then I start to build up an anger towards him thinking he's definitely not getting it tonight now. It removes that object out of the way and he knows he just needs to come home a little bit earlier that night. If he texts back saying, I, can't, oh, I won't get home till late, okay, we'll reschedule for tomorrow because it's not, God, I'm not going to be in the best frame of mind. Object number two, this was when the kids were little. This is really annoying. Bedtime. Bedtime routine took about two hours in our house. By the time you've done the bath and the bed and the books and the praying, I was almost at my own bed. Because you're so tired, aren't you? It's like, oh, I can't even bother going downstairs now. I'll leave all the lights on all night. I'm just so tired, I just want to get in bed. And so that's so my second proviso was this. Come home on time. Please will you help me with bedtime, bath time tonight? Third thing. I need you to make me feel like I've got your undivided attention tonight. And that means I'm not sharing my time with you in your phone. I'm not sharing my time with you in your tablet. I'm not sharing my time with you in, in Netflix. It's got to be about me tonight. Now, that sounds selfish, but that's where I had to go in order to reawaken myself. Because in the Bible it says, it talks about having times, doesn't it, in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 7, it says, 7 it says do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote, your, devote yourselves to prayer. Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control. We could do like a whole message just on that on itself. It's all right for there to be periods in your marriage where you don't have sex, but you have to agree it. Could be health reasons, could be lots of reasons because you're stressed you have to talk about it and you have to agree of what that time frame looks like because it will stop the enemy getting in and wreaking havoc in your marriage so when Paul comes home and we've done all these things and then it comes to me going into the bedroom I feel like a different woman because my needs have been met I'm big on acts of service if you've done love languages I'm always high on acts of service. That means if he does some jobs for me. So by coming home and, and helping with bedtime, he's done acts of service, tick. We've had quality time together because we've removed all the other objects, the phone, the TV and everything else. And we've just talked about our day or whatever. And all these things have happened all to make sure that we both feel loved. And it's helped me to re-engage back into our um, intimacy. I have an issue with phones in the bedroom. I need it for an alarm. But how often do you get in bed and then you start scrolling through your phone? You're just inviting somebody else into your bedroom. Your bedroom should be your sanctuary. It should be your sacred place. It should be the place that just you two come together and there's no interruptions. But listen to this for a, a little um, snippet of information I found. 10% of people check their phones during sex. 10%. Where would you stick that phone? 10% during sex. I was like, no, that cannot be right. It's true. It said it on the internet. So it was actually from a sex psychologist, but there you go. Okay, sex myth number. Oh, let me do a little promo of the book. This book is life-changing when it comes to intimacy. It's um, Dr. Kevin Lieberman. It's in the bookshop and it's called Sheet Music. If you need some tips of how to reawaken yourself and to know each other better, 
this is about we give this to all our marriage prep and all our marriage course um, candidates. It really is a really good book. So there's a little book for you to go and, and find. Okay, so sex myth number three. You are too old. Can I just put this out there? I know I'm only 42, but you are never too old to have great sex. Doctors recommend that you continue to have sex. If you're physically healthy enough, your sex, should, sex life should last you the lifetime of your marriage. In Proverbs 5.18, it says this, May your fountains be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated by her love. The Bible's saying, enjoy the wife that you chose when you were young within the long and deep commitment of marriage. God intended for you to have good sex all the way through your marriage. My own mum and stepdad um, had been married for many years. And after we'd all sort of left home, they became more like companions. They started to sleep in separate rooms, but became just very good friends. They would say that was enough for them at their age. You know, it's okay for that to be happening now. My mum would say, oh, I'm happy with my lot. She had like a luxury bedroom to herself, though. I think that's why. <laughs> Until something absolutely life-transforming happened to them. You see, my mum had been a Christian all of her adult life, but my stepdad hadn't. And she prayed for him for over 20 years. 20 years of consistently praying that he would know Jesus one day. He'd been on every Alpha course and every church social going. And you know what? It happened one day in his shed. On his own. Would you believe it? Jesus just does the funniest things, doesn't he? All that investment of time in the shed. And so he prayed this prayer, asked for Jesus to come into his life, popped in the house and said, I've just prayed that prayer. Mum was like, what, the, the prayer? Yeah, yeah, I've just done it now, yeah. And she was gobsmacked, she couldn't believe it. But what happened was, within the space of then six months that followed that moment happening, they managed to find another level of love, like a deeper level of love that they'd been um, never experienced before. And all of a sudden, it's gross for me to say this, <laughs> they became physically attracted to one another. In fact, it was like, please don't tell me. I'm all about talking about sex, but it's, I draw the line at parents. But they fell in love. They fell in love and became attracted to one another again and moved back into one bedroom because Jesus has resurrected every area of their marriage. So the moral of the story is you are never too old to have sex. Okay. Sex myth number four. Sex should be like the movies. Now, have you noticed this should? Because people will go, sex is like the movies. We believe, we've taught ourselves that sex should be like the movies, but we all know it's nothing like the movies, is it? You know, it's all like perfect and there's fireworks and passion and the timing's perfect and she's got matching underwear on. And actually, <laughs> it's nothing like that at all. It's really not. And we have to tell our marriage prep um, candidates that it's not like the movies. Don't big it up because it's not going to be perfectly timed. But it shouldn't be. Sex is better than that. Sex is messy. 
It's fun. It's emotional. It's all the things that God intended it to be. We shouldn't make a marker for what we think it should be because a film's shown it that way. We should be looking at, at what does God say about sex? You know, he created it. It was his gift to us. I'd go as far as to say this. Sex should not be like the movies, but sex should be like the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about the weird stuff with Lot and his daughters and the weird thing going on with Tamar sleeping with a father-in-law, which also grosses me out. But <clears throat> I'm talking about the most beautiful, intimate chapter in the Bible in Song of Songs. So let me just read you a little extract of this. This is a lover, Solomon. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. She's not got goaty hair. Now you're thinking of like wiry, wiry, coarse kind of smelly hair. That's not what he's saying. Beautiful mountain, black goats running down. Basically your hair's down. That's where he's going with that. Okay. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. She's got clean teeth. <laughs> this is my favourite. Each one has its twin. Not one of them's a lunch coffle set. <laughs> She's got a full set. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temple behind your veils are like halves of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. No double chin. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. She's not breastfed yet. <laughs> Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I'll go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful, my darling, you are. There is no flaw in you. You have stolen my heart, my sister, not related, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine. And the fragrance of your perfume, better than any spice. She replies back. I love this. My lover is radiant and ruddy. It's like, ruddy. I say ruddy in a different context because I'm from up north. It's like ruddy Nora. It's not like the same ruddy I think she's saying. My lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are like rods of gold. Yes. Big, strong arms, tanned. <laughs> well, I thought tanned, but then it says his body's like polished ivory. I thought he's two-tone. It's like when you've had like a patchy tan, isn't it? Like ivory legs, bronzed arms. I've had that happen before. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice in its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover. This is my friend. That is better than any film I've seen. They are just two people mentally undressing each other, aren't they? Top to bottom. She's describing him. He's describing her. They are infatuated and captivated by one another. Neither of these two will have been perfect. But in their eyes, they were. In each other's eyes, they found no flaw 
in one another. And there's something so pure in that. I can find flaw in Paul all the time. It's married life. I work with these things. But for these two, they're just portraying what it is to have that desire, that intimate infatuation, just such a beautiful example. That God's words, it's in there for a reason. It's in there so we can learn from that. We don't need to watch Fifty Shades of Grey. It's here. It's perfect. It's pure love. It's how it's meant to be. It's how God intended it to be. He wants us to steal one another's hearts. So sex shouldn't be like the movies. Sex should be like the Bible. You can take that back to church for you and see how they do with that. Okay. Number five. You are too unattractive to have sex. Can I just say this? You are beautiful. You are beautiful. And you might not even like me saying that to you, but I'm going to tell you again that you are beautiful. Because really how you feel is all in your head. Like literally, it's all in your head. It's what you think about yourself. It's about you um, embracing the skin you're in. It's really hard to do when you don't feel that about yourself. We've had so many good words spoken over us, Sheila and Sarah, about our thoughts of ourselves. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's such a cliche verse that for women's ministry, isn't it? But it's so true. You were made by God. You were beautifully and wonderfully made. This feeling of, of being unattractive is a real battle for women because I think we look at it all the time. It's in movies. It's in um, everywhere we look. It's in those magazines. It's, it's on the internet. It's on your Instagram feed. You know, you're following that celebrity and you're seeing her with a ripped body and a no-sugar diet. It's like, oh, I feel rubbish now. I'm going to go and reach for the bulb on biscuits. I'm so depressed that you've just done a two-hour workout and you're having your shake. It's like, oh, I feel rubbish. And what happens is then we start to feel inferior and we start to feel inadequate. And so what we do is we disassociate ourselves from our own bodies because we don't want to look at the skin that we're in because we don't feel worthy. We don't feel good. And so it actually doesn't matter. Your husband could stand there and tell you, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful it doesn't count for anything unless you feel that way yourself and we've we've listened to Sheila this morning talking about those thought processes it's got to be about how you feel about yourself only you can change that and so um we can we could do like a whole session on body confidence and things like that but we haven't got time but Sheila's here and she she's spoken lots as well and um her book um is out and that that's um all about body confidence as well isn't it Sheila how to feel good naked and so I would recommend that too but let me just tell you some top tips that I've used in the past and there's only a few but bear with me first of all say no to false images if you don't like seeing that and it makes you feel rubbish on your Instagram feed don't follow them don't buy that magazine if it doesn't make you feel better about yourself after you've read it and you just feel worse don't buy it say no to the false images that's in front of you and take um just cut those things off that are robbing you of your body confidence. Start building up and doing some work on your own self-confidence. And you can start that today. It's really simple. The first time will be challenging. But stand in front of the mirror when you put your makeup on tonight to go out or doing your hair or whatever you're doing and tell yourself, I am beautiful. Say it with confidence though. Don't look away when you say it. 
Don't say it quickly so that it doesn't count. Look yourself in the eye and tell yourself, I'm beautiful, I'm fearfully, wonderfully made, I'm a daughter of a king. The king of all kings. There is no greater, higher king than the king that we are under, the banner of Jesus. And so you are allowed to say, I am beautiful. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And actually, you could tell yourself that today and then not bother again. And today's where it'll stay. I say you tell it to yourself every single day. Speak those words to yourself. Because for all them years that you've told yourself you're not, I'm not attractive. You've got to reprogram that thought process. You've got to start telling yourself some God-given truths that counteract that. Another thing is um, to write down five things that you like about your body. Now, if you want to start writing them now, that's up to you. If you feel like I'm inspired, I'm going to go for it, do it. If not, go back to your room later on and do it. Do it maybe a glass of wine. You might be a bit more loose-lipped about it. Like, oh, great boobs. She's got great boobs. Write it down, write it down. Write it down. So write these five things down. Um, because that's going to help you when you find yourself going down a road where doubt starts to creep in, you have to start telling yourself what you love. Now, if you're struggling to find five things, you get on the phone to your husband, give him a heads up, I want five things. Tell me five things that you find attractive about me. And if he says, I'm struggling, <laughs> make him do that. Yeah, but I think, you know, you just, I am not the same size woman my husband married. So certainly when he met me at 12, that was weird. But, you know, <laughs> I'm the vessel that carried those three children. The marks on my skin are from carrying his three children. We were in this together. He got a lucky escape. He just had to do the bit that Sarah discussed earlier, you know. He just delivered the sperm. I did all the carrying. My body's the way it is because of my lifestyle and who I am. And I want him to love me for the battle of myself for it. So I'm going, what five things do I like about myself? You know, you've got to talk to yourself about it. I like my eyes. I like my teeth. I like my hair. I like I've got brown eyes, brown hair, blue eyes. It's a bit unusual. I like that about myself. It's all right to say my boobs are good, my bum looks good, my legs are great, my feet look great. It's all right to say that about yourself. So find the five things you like. Speak to your husband about them. Okay. Last myth. It's a biggie. Sex is dirty and should not be talked about, let alone enjoyed. Okay, I'm going to take some wisdom from Ruth Smethers, wife of Reverend Smethers. This is horrendous, this book, by the way. Okay, let me just read you some of her top, top, somebody said something else then, top <laughs> tips for young brides. Okay, so this is her book to young brides. To a sensitive young woman who has had the benefits of proper upbringing, the wedding day, ironically, is the both ha most happiest and most terrifying day of her life. On the positive side, there's a wedding itself, which the bride is centre of attention, and she um, centre of the attraction, and is um, in her beautiful and inspiring ceremony, symbolising her triumph in securing a male provider for all her needs. On the negative side, there's the wedding night, during which the bride must pay the piper. So to speak, by facing for the first time the terrible experience of sex. At this point, dear reader, concede one shocking truth. Some young women actually anticipate the wedding night ordeal with curiosity and pleasure. <laughs> Beware of such an attitude. <laughs> a selfish and sensual husband can easily take advantage of such a bride. One cardinal rule of marriage must, should never, ever be forgotten. 
give little, give seldom, and above all, give grudgingly. And she goes on to give all these like tips to young brides about how you should really wear as many clothes as, as you can to bed at night, how you should really just tire him out so that you can't be bothered to have sex at bedtime. And she was giving all these tips out to young brides. You want to read it, don't you now? You're intrigued about what she's saying. <coughs> she wasn't the beloved wife of Redland Smithers at all. I feel that poor, poor man was not experienced the full love of his wife. But sex in marriage isn't dirty. It was never intended to be dirty. It was a created gift from God to help us to connect with one another on another level that goes beyond words. You can't reach that level in any other way. You were created by God to feel intimacy. You were created to unite together more than just physically. Sex is more than just the physical. It's the emotional. It's the spiritual. John Waite, a Christian psychiatrist, writes, sex was intended to end aloneness the communion of closeness, the intimacy, the knowing and being known, the loving and being loved is a complex structure. It takes years to grow. It begins as this delicate and beautiful plant with vibrant life, but it grows into a sturdy tree with deep roots. Our sexual bonds throughout marriage should increase, not decrease. Sexless marriages are depriving us of this deeper connection. See, we should want to be great oak, shouldn't we? We should want to stand as an example to other people, to our neighbours and our friends and our children. Sex has just been so distorted and tarnished in this world since the beginning of mankind. It all started, didn't it, in the garden? There's been this continuous battle between man and Satan. And what happened was sex got taken out of the context of marriage and so it became all about the physical, about what our bodies are doing and what they look like, not who we're doing it with and why we're doing it. You might have had a negative experience yourself. In your own marriage, there might have been an affair. You might be battling in your marriage with addictions to alcohol, drugs and pornography. You could be struggling with them right now today because these will affect your marriage. All them things break trust. They make intimacy really hard to obtain. These are your, this is your stuff. If you're battling with any of those things, this is your stuff. And it needs to be talked about. God didn't intend for your marriage to be like this. And sometimes it just takes to talk to somebody to just remove that blockage. And maybe you need counselling, you need to talk to somebody at a deeper level and that's okay. And get some accountability so that you can get some help in rebuilding your trust. Because eventually then you'll be able to forgive. And I mean eventually because it is a journey of forgiveness. I just want to say it's not all right. And it's not okay to have sex against your will. Even within the confines of your marriage. Please talk to somebody if this is you today. If you have been abused, this is not your fault. It is not your fault. It's not how your marriage is supposed to be. See, God created you a woman. And just like Eve, he made her out of Adam's rib. He made Eve out of Adam's rib. And there's a reason for that. 
It was so that they walked side by side, that they stood together side by side. He didn't take the bone for Eve out of Adam's head so that he could rule over her. He didn't take it out of Adam's foot so that he could keep her down and she would be his servant. He used Adam's ribs so that they were side by side. Very song of songs that, affirming, telling each other. She, he doesn't say something nice to her and she goes, okay, thanks. She replies back, they're equal in this. Their passion and everything's equal. We should be equals in this. It's your marriage. You both entered it. One of you wasn't at the top of the aisle shouting the odds at the other one. You both walked up that aisle together, side by side. That's how it's supposed to be. Let's start being authentic. Let's start being authentic about intimacy. Don't be afraid to talk about sex. I'm not talking about the intimate details. That No one wants to know that. But it's important that as Christians, we start to champion the benefits of having a healthy relationship with our husband. We've got to flip this. We've got to educate. We've got to fight back against all the lies that surround sex now. In our conversation with friends, oh, sometimes I've talked to a friend and they've been talking about relationship problems and I've just gone, how's your sex life? It normally shuts them up straight away and I get a negative response. But then they go, actually, what's sex life? I don't even have sex. And I think, all oh, right, okay. There's something more to this and what's going on. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. Don't be afraid to talk about sex and ask them. It gives an opportunity for you to champion intimacy. We need to educate our children. This is really, really important to educate our children. Oh, I need to keep going, right, sorry. Okay, I've got to get this out because I want you to understand this about educating your children. I'm sorry if we're going to overrun. Let's keep going with it. We have always taught our children the importance of having boundaries. We've taught them about the value of holding on to their virginity to marriage. This was something my eldest daughter, Lauren, did all the way through high school. In fact, she fought hard to keep her virtue. When all her friends were having sex at 14 years old, they were calling her the vicar because she kept her virtue. When she was 17, she was at college, started to date a really nice Christian boy from our church. He was so perfect. He'd come from a Christian family. He was good-looking. He was sporty. He was clever. He served in our church. He played on our church football team. He did outreach, and she completely fell for him. She was infatuated with him. And we welcomed him into our family home, treated him like one of our own, really. He got himself a place at university, um, which was far away. So one night he came to our house, and he broke up with her. He didn't want a long-distance relationship. Of course, as you can imagine, she was devastated, first love and all. But they agreed to stay friends, and so in the September, he left for university. She was never the same again. She became rebellious. She was out of control. This was our little girl who we, like, we thought we knew. We didn't know her anymore. She was completely unrecognisable to us. She'd stay out all night, lock herself away in a room when she was home. We stopped having these mum and daughter chats that we were so used to. <clears throat> and for months, me and Paul, my husband, battled. And we prayed and prayed and prayed because there's nothing else we can do. We were just at a complete loss with what was going on. The following February, everything came to a halt when one morning I went to a room and I stood in a doorway and she was on her bed and um, she looked awful. I looked at her bed and she had all these vodka bottles and things underneath the bed where she laid and she just looked terrible. And I said, look, love, I, I love you, but I don't know who you are anymore. I, I need you to help me here, don't know what to get hold of. At that point, she had a complete mental and physical breakdown. 
she was in so much pain physically, I couldn't even hold her. The panic attack she was having was so severe. And she was just crying uncontrollably. She told me, she said, Mum, I'm not a virgin anymore. She said, I had sex last year with the boyfriend that had left to go to uni. She told me how we came back to in the summer. Told him he made a big mistake, that he loved her and he wanted to marry her. And so he said it'd be all right with God if they slept together because that cemented their relationship because they were going to be together forever anyway. And so she gave in and she slept with him. When he'd finished, he told her to get dressed and get out. And she, <laughs> she got on the bus home. I'm sorry I'm emotional about this. I thought I'd had it. I'm going to go with it because it's important for you to learn the lesson I had to learn. She never said a word to us because she was so embarrassed that she'd given this precious gift to somebody else and he'd taken it from her. The following months, he continually played a game with her. He'd sneak up, follow her, turn up at our house when we weren't in. He repeatedly sexually abused her. This destructive behaviour might not have happened if he was educated properly by his parents, by his school, and by our church. Someone needed to take responsibility because what happened was he was addicted to porn and he'd get a rush from reenacting it on my daughter. But if he hadn't been, if he'd been educated properly, I think, God, would that have happened? Did she have to pay the price for what he did? That he was not educated. We all have a responsibility to educate our children because porn doesn't teach intimacy. Porn doesn't teach love. It doesn't teach respect. It doesn't teach honour. There is no place for porn in your marriage. There is no place for porn in your teenager's life. It is not acceptable because somewhere along the way, someone will pay a consequence for it. And I don't want it to be you or your children either. Now, she's doing great. She has her down days, but now she's um, away at university She's um, nursing. She's doing a really great job. She's in a new relationship, which we thought she would never be able to do again, with a Christian man who loves her and loves Jesus even more, which is amazing. The enemy used sex to destroy her. He also used sex to try and destroy us as a family. He wanted to break us, but he didn't have the victory because God restores all that was taken. And so for me, intimacy is made up of many things. But three of the most important I'm going to leave you with. It's important to be known, communicate and talk to one another. It's so important that you make that first step to talk. It's important that you are loved and that you love. And it's important that you are safe and that you have trust. And if you've got those three things in place, you will have a healthy, loving, intimate relationship because it can be hard to work through these problems, but we have to stop thinking that our lives will be better if sex didn't interfere, because sex interferes for a reason. God wants us to be authentic and get rid of the lies that the enemy's sown around it. So thank you for your time. There's so much more I could have said. Please talk to me if you want to, and we've got some questions. I don't know if we're going to have time for questions now, um, but I know lots of you do have questions, and some of the questions you've sent in are very big questions that we would love to talk to you about. Um, should we, should we, mean, um, she'll stay behind in here or what would work?
Yeah, okay, so we're going to look at the three main areas that come up in the questions and then we'll, um, we'll take it from there. So I'm sorry I've overrun, um, but I felt like everything that was said was a God-given message and thank you for, for sharing. Right, fabulous, thank you. I don't think any of us mind that you, you overran at all, don't think you have. Um, so we do have questions. Thank you to those of you who have put them towards us. If in our very brief responses we, you feel that you haven't heard your answer clearly enough, please come and talk to us individually. All right, so, but we will, I've put them into three rough sections. I think actually the first one you've pretty much addressed Quite a few of you asked the question about pornography. Um, does it constitute an infidelity? Uh, what's the effect on, on my marriage? How do I deal with it? Um, quite a few questions about that. I think that Lindsay's already been pretty clear about that, that it is an infidelity. Do you want to say any more? Yeah, just briefly, it, there is no room in your marriage for it. If he's looking at things and images on the internet, they are emblazed in his mind. And you cannot take, I will not have another woman in my husband's head. And you have to fight for that in your marriage. Yeah, there's no place. If you were questioning and thinking, and he's thinking it's all right, it's not okay. But again, I, we can talk more to you about that. Um, a link to that question was the question of, is masturbation okay? Um, and um, I clarified um, that it depends on what gender you're asking that question from, and it, it depends on your reasons for asking that. Uh, in my conversations with many women about why they don't enjoy their sex lives, it's because they don't know their body well enough and they don't know how to climax. And they and and quite honestly, you have to give them freedom to say, it's your body. You can touch yourself wherever you want on your body. God gave you the most amazing organ, your clitoris, which works if you know how it works. So in that context... Absolutely. If masturbation becomes a reason to avoid intimacy, an alternative way of getting sexual fulfillment, um, then that's not healthy. It's not helpful. But otherwise, if it's just a question of you understanding your body better, absolutely. The second area that you ask questions about is about communication, finding it difficult to talk about sex. Uh, how do we initiate um, sex when we haven't had it for a very long time? How can we re-establish it? Any tips on initiation? And we felt that all these questions were about communication. I've got one answer, and then I'll hand over to Lindsay, who might have a different one. Have the conversation about sex in the car, but preferably without any small people <laughs> behind you listening. When you're on a long car journey, boring, okay, turn the radio off, his hands are on the wheel, there is no pressure on him to respond to this uh, conversation without, with any action, your eyes are both forward, it is the good place to have a conversation about sex. Put it and frame it positively, never sound critical. Say things like, I love it when you... Do you know, I'm really thrilled. It's lovely when we have time to. So much better than you, you, you should do this, this, this. So that's my tip for communication. Yeah, I agree with that tip. Um, also, another tip is uh, do it naked. If you were struggling, not sex, that would, yeah, if you have sex naked, that's great. Have the conversations if you can. Sometimes to break down some barriers that have come up, it's the fact that you actually can't even get to the point where you want to take your clothes off. So I would say sometimes without even having sex, to lie there one another with one another and talk about 
what it is that you need or don't need or what's going on just to break them barriers down. Um, I even heard a psychologist say um, all arguments should be settled in the bedroom naked because there's something very powerful about that being stripped bare and vulnerable that allows you to break down those barriers of communication. And then the third area of questions were about the problem husband. In other words, you were each of you who asked these questions saying there's, there's an issue, there's either been an infidelity or the husband, you, your husband has just withdrawn sexually, is withdrawn emotionally and physically. Um, and we felt that, um, the, as we looked at these, we felt that this was an issue about communication and we wanted to know, well, why had that situation arisen? For me, the image that comes to mind is a bit like having a field. The soil has got to be right for the wheat to grow. If you've got healthy soil, if you've got a healthy relationship with one another, you've got the right context for a healthy sex life. And I think you spoke about that earlier on, which I think was very good. But things like, are you spending time together enjoying each other's company? Are you um, physically connected in just in, in small ways like hugs and small touches? Um, are you talking to each other? The soil has to be there. You can't just plunge into passionate sex without those things being there. Yeah, okay. And there was one other question that that someone has asked and maybe too too embarrassed to ask it personally and it's absolutely fine or happy to talk about anything what about anal sex the bible doesn't give you any um instruction or guideline as to whether that's right or wrong and so we had a quick chat about this and we're both on the same page about it is that it's between you and your husband they are your bodies are you in agreement are you comfortable? Are you both comfortable about what you're doing, whatever it is you're choosing to do? Okay? And um, there may be times in your life when uh, penetrative sex is just not on. Okay? There are other ways to bring yourselves to climax. It's absolutely fine. The Bible doesn't rule that out. It's about respect. It's about honoring. It's about communication. So I hope that has answered some of your questions. But really, Lindsay, fantastic job. I so enjoyed listening to that. Should we give her another round of applause? Well done. Thank you.